Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Wars Podcast, and we're going for what might be called a little bit of a public service announcement. To help us with this, we have the esteemed Matt Landridge, not on Twitter Langers, MBE. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Um, it's great to have you on. You, you're going to let us know a little bit about, about your history in the sport and um, some of the things you're doing now. Yeah, well, th- uh, thanks for having me on. I was, I'll have to uh, correct the first statement. I unfortunately am on Twitter now. I uh, I cracked eventually, but uh, yeah, for a long time wasn't. So uh, I think that's where I originally got the nickname from. You, you, you got the hashtag, which was pretty good. Uh, there's, only, there's only so much bullying I could take, and then eventually <laughs> I'd better go on and see what it was all about. And and having been on and seen what it's all about, will you shortly be leaving it? <laughs> well, I think you could, you'll probably be able to tell by my Twitter profile that... Uh, I'm definitely not prolific on social media. I think I have maybe a post every once every couple of months, but yeah. I, I imagine there's a lot to be said for that. For for one reason or another, for a man of your accomplishments, you're you're not one of the sort of household names of British rowing. We, we have mentioned on the podcast a couple of times has been a shocking injustice. So just to give us a bit of a, an idea of where you come from and what you've done how how did you get into rowing what what was your what was your entry story into it i think i mean i I was a i guess i was a product of being inspired by the olympics as a kid i just used to love all sport i used to try my hand hand at any sport i could um any sport i came across so i was uh i think my main sport was probably swimming but anything football rugby athletics tennis anything i could do i would do uh, so when the Olympics came around, uh, for that entire two weeks, I'd be glued to the TV. I'd watch every sport going. I'd be morning to night just trying to, yeah, just watch everything that's going. And then it was back in 1996. So that is, uh, I mean, we've already allude, alluded to my age, as uh, most people won't remember. But in 96, the team wasn't as good as it is now. Um, we didn't bring a big haul of medals back uh, like we do now. And at the time... Um, I think we got to the middle weekend and there'd been no gold medals. There'd been a few bronze and a few silvers and all the talk uh, about our big chance for a gold medal was these two rowers, Matthew Pinsent and Steve Redgrave. Um, up to that point, I'd never heard of rowing. didn't know it was a sport. I don't think I'd ever watched a boat race. Um, but because this was our one chance of a gold medal, I sat down, watched the race. And then I remember all the commentary afterwards was all, all about um, how like tall people made good rowers. I was quite tall as tall as a kid, um, so that was kind of my first time I kind of noticed it as a sport. And then there was another incident, probably a couple of months later. I was down at a gym with um, a couple of friends of mine, um, and in the corner was this row machine, which I've never seen one like it before or since. And it was it was like an old-fashioned row machine. It had this like big computer screen at the front. It was kind okay. of like an old. An old like Amstrad, and it, you basically sat there, and and depending on how hard you pulled, depending on you raced, and there was two little men, and and yeah, you could uh, you basically raced your this other computer, uh, this other boat, uh, and there was different settings on it, and I obviously being a bit ambitious went straight away for the Olympic setting, and I bit I won, and uh, oh, obviously I know now as a thirteen year old kid, there's no chance it was of Olympic standard, but at the time I remember being like quite. Like inwardly, overjoyed. I didn't want to show off too much for my mates, but inwardly, I was quite excited, thinking, "Okay, I might be quite good at this." 
Um, and then from that, I then kind of thought, okay, well, um, I might go down and give it a go. And it, it turned out there was a rowing club two minutes, three minutes from my house. I probably walked past hundreds of time. Um, but I, I said I, I just not even realised it was a sport until I'd seen it at the Olympics and then gone on this row machine and, and that kind of what inspired me to go down and give it a go. So which club was that? Uh, that was Northwich. So it's in the northwest. Okay. Cheshire. Yeah, so me and Aaron met at Agecroft. So we know Northwich quite well and we also know places like Chester and Runcorn and that kind of thing. Dennis, wherever we were racing... Dennis would would hold the course record, even if it was like on the Mars Delta at the moment. He'd probably have the course record for it. And we asked him one we asked him one day, um, if you have all these course records, Dennis, how come Steve Redgrave has got all the Olympic gold medals? And he went, ah, because he was a Scot. Redgrave, he was all very well in Olympic finals, but you never saw him at Runcorn in the rain, did you? <laughs> so we need to ask Matt. The sign of a real rower is, have you done Runcorn in the rain? I've won Runcorn in the rain. Uh, oh, well I, 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 I don't know if I'm, I'd argue with Dennis's record. I think I might have got it. I don't think I don't think it out. I remember, I've done Runcorn plenty of times, and I, uh, I've got a few of the records around the Northwest. I don't know if that was one of them. So, uh, that, that, you'll have to look at the history. I mean, I, I obviously been at Northwich. I read, I'd heard all the stories about Dennis as well. So oh. it, uh, the stories spread further than just uh, Agecroft, that's for sure. It's it's not the ones about locking us in a cellar and refusing to let us out until we've broken certain times on the erg, is it? Because they, they were not true. They were never found to be true. <laughs> it wasn't a cellar. Yeah. yeah, there wasn't a cellar. He just used to lock us in the boat base. From your start at Northwich, did you basically uh, race and train around the Northwest for a, for a period? So you'll have done things like Chester, uh, Northwich, Runcorn, Chester Sprints, Chester Regatta. Did you ever do Agecroft Head or anything like that? No, Agecroft's one of the ones I didn't do. Um, I did all the others. I did, uh, yeah, I did Chester Runcorn, Boynton, yeah, all, all those kind of ones around there. Uh, I mean, I, so I did, for the first couple of years of being a junior, that was kind of, yeah, I did most of my racing. Uh, and then I think my first entry into the wider rowing community uh, was when I did national championships. Okay. Uh, we did we did the national, well, I did, so I did national championships was my fourth ever regatta. Um, and I got bronze in the single. Uh, no, sorry, bronze in the double. I came six in the single. Um, but then the following year, kind of was then I, I then went on to do a bit more and take it a little bit more seriously. So you 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 won medals at national championships in your fourth race, and then decided to take it seriously. You must have. I mean, was there a point where you thought I'm I'm quite good at this? I could do things here. I'd always say that for me. I guess I guess rowing just was. It wasn't a po- I think I knew quite early on I was quite good at it. I mean, first first couple of sessions, I was probably more swimming than rowing because I capsized, capsized quite a bit. But once I managed to stay upright, I realised I could make the boat go reasonably quick. And I think I started to win quite a lot of stuff domestically. Um, and also, I kind of progressed up. I mean, I was only 14 at the time, but I was already racing seniors as well. I was always already racing the kind of senior one, senior twos, elite. Um, so I, I think I realised, yeah, reasonably early on, but at that point I didn't know kind of how serious I could take it. Um, at Northwich, there'd been there'd been some juniors before who had maybe gone to junior trials and done a few things, but there wasn't really an obvious pathway and kind of this is what can be done. This is how far you can take it. Um, so for me at the time, it was just it was kind of about having fun with my friends, doing some racing and enjoying it more than anything. 
Uh, yeah, I so said the first year went to national championships just purely because to, to go and race it, but no real expectations. Um, I, th- I think uh, originally I was entering the double and last minute we decided to put a single entry in. Um, I did a lot better than I was expected in the single. Um, made, the, made the final, but then the I remember the double final and the single final clash quite a bit, so I had to pretty much race the double, jump straight out, couldn't do the, go to the podium. I had to row straight back up to the single race. Um, and then, yeah, it just kind of went from there, really. It was kind of a um, quite a steep project, uh, upward trajectory. Fair enough. So, and, and that would have been when? About sort of 90... Uh, 98, 96 was my first national championships. 97 was the first time I won. So I won, uh, Strathclyde won the single at A15. So, and, and this wasn't Nat Juniors, this was national championships. Yeah, it's just, no, this was not, this was the, um, so at the time we didn't do national schools. Yeah. Because uh, Northridge Regatta clashes with national schools Regatta. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, yeah, well, you've you, you got to have your priorities, haven't you? Yeah, well, exactly. And the, the stubborn uh, hierarchy at Northridge are adamant that Northridge Regatta was there first, so there's no way they were going to budge. Sure. So uh, at the time when I first started, no juniors went to national schools. Um, I think, yeah, once I won as a 15-year-old and started to get noticed, then... The following year, I went to national schools as a J16. Um, and that's kind of where, and that's more when I kind of spread my horizon beyond the Northwest and, uh, yeah, started racing down south a bit more and doing the national trials and got a bit more nationally recognised. I mean, up till then, although I'd won the national championships, I'd just turned up at national championships. So I was kind of an unknown. Nobody, everybody else had been racing each other all year and I just turned up and, and uh, yeah, raced and won it. <laughs> They must have loved you, my God. I actually had a bit of a shocker on my first one. Uh, so my, so it was up in Strathclyde. I basically, after making the final in my first year, it was kind of the big ambition was to go and win the national championships the following year. So even though I'd not been racing any of the top guys, uh, that had been kind of the ambition. And we'd been, and we went up to Strathclyde and I'd done I'd won the heat, won the semi, went into the final quite confident. Took three strokes and came from my seat. Um, dropped about three lengths. Uh, managed to scramble back on, race down the course, and uh, crossed the... Um, I think I still won it by three, four lengths. Won it comfortably. Came into the podium, and uh, I could see all like my friends and family were all there, and everybody was kind of giggling. Oh, and I was thinking, oh, God, I thought I'd go away with it. Because obviously I'd fallen off right at the start, 2,000 metres away. I was thinking, there's no way they could have known. And it doesn't matter. I've still got back on and won the race. So so what's uh, so what's everyone finding so funny? And then I was basically studying the podium, and then I saw my mum kind of whispering to me at the side, and it turned out that I was wearing my uh, all-in-one back to front, and I hadn't noticed. <laughs> So there's a picture of me stood there collecting my first gold medal with my all-in-one back to front. <laughs> yeah, I've done I've done very very similar things. It didn't involve like a gold medal at that champs. Must to show that the professionalism of British rowing reaches far down, far far down into the grassroots. So well, yeah, I mean it doesn't get any better because I've actually had um, uh, well actually one to guy uh, Richard uh, Rick Edgington who I raced with did a similar thing at one of the World Cups, but he pulled. <laughs> 
he pulled his other one up to just before the start, and I was behind. I was sat behind him, and suddenly you see the badge pe- uh, facing at me, and the seaman's across the back, and you suddenly realise what he's done. I, I basically spent the first half of the race laughing to myself. I rode with a um, rower at Edgecroft called Ben Charles, wonderful rower, but we basically were a pair for most of the time that we were at Edgecroft. If we were ever put in a boat where he was behind me and I had so much as a strap out of place, I would just feel this this hand come forward and that would have driven him absolutely crackers. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, it obviously spans all the levels. One of the things about my history is that I got into rowing through the rowing machine. So I, I was an indoor rower before I joined the rowing club. Um, and so I was kind of aware of you through probably in about 2003, because I started going on the Concept2 website, and there was this absolutely absurd 2K time that had been set for the J18 Championship. I mean, I mean sort of that, that, that must have been, I mean, a real sort of like, you, you were the first British J18 to go under six minutes, weren't you? Yeah, so I did it uh I mean, I think it's. I think it still stands because nobody had actually done it at the championships. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of juniors that have gone quicker. I mean, I think I actually went quicker away from the championships, but actually at the British championships. Yeah. I mean, I think it was uh, the only reason I. The only reason I did it was. I mean, I, I've never been. I actually enjoyed 2K tests. I, I'm one of those kind of weird people that actually do yeah. like a 2K test. Um, but I don't like the rowing machine. Anything longer than 2K has never been something I've particularly enjoyed. Um, but yeah, obviously there was this record. Uh, so the record before then, I think, was six minutes dead. And uh, the guy who said it was an absolute... He wasn't a rower. Um, uh, I think he was a swimmer. And he, he was an absolute mountain. He was like 6'10". And obviously, I'd just come back from doing the Junior World Championships. So I just won the World Championships. And... Uh, for me, yeah, it was just an opportunity to, to kind of go and beat it and, and try and break six minutes. And I remember I had, I think it was actually Martin Cross who was doing the commentary at the time. And I remember, I mean, I started off, I mean, my kind of predominant race style was to go off quite hard, take a bit of a rest in the middle and have a good sprint at the end. And I think Cross, it's a halfway mark, I was kind of off it, but still quite confident I could do it because I knew I had quite a good sprint. But I remember Crossy almost, I could hear him in my ear saying, oh, yeah, he's blown it, he's uh, hes not on for this, blah, blah, blah. And I think in some ways my my mentality was that just spurred me on more. If anybody said I couldn't do anything, that was kind of the the red rag to the bull that kind of kicked me into gear and spurred me on to do it. So as soon as I heard that, then it was, uh, and then, yeah, that's all I needed. Did you know before you went to do it that you were on for sub six? Had you done pieces in training that suggested it was it was... It was in your wheelhouse. You knew that you were on the upward trajectory towards it. No, I don't think I'd done any. I just, I mean, I, I, it was quite early on at the start of the season. I hadn't really done a lot of training at that point. Uh, I hadn't. I don't think I'd done any real pieces, actually. Um, I mean, at the time, I'd, I think the year before I'd done 602. So I kind of wasn't too far off. And I just felt that, yeah, I just kind of, yeah, I knew that I was constantly improving constantly getting better so I kind of felt like yeah it was a score that I was was doable but and then Martin saying he's blown it was like right okay I know I can do this I'm digging in here 
Yeah, I think I think for me it was always the yeah. Any time somebody told me I couldn't do anything, that was always the kind of inspiration and or the motivation I needed. I had a similar thing the year when I won the Junior World Championships. The the chief coach at the time, I remember sitting down with him in in Seville. So I, I'd done the double the year before. Uh, we just missed out on a medal, but we'd come fourth in Zagreb in 2000, and I'd kind of come back from there. Bitterly disappointed. We'd I'd really gone there believing we could win. And we kind of went into the final feeling that we could win and we just didn't race a good race on the day. So I'd come away really disappointed. And I remember coming back and talking to my coach back in Northwoods and said, right, okay, next year I'm going to go back. I'm going to do a single, I'm going to win it. And that was my big my big ambition that I wanted to do. And then we, I'd had a bit of a slow start to the season. I wasn't going too quick. And then in, on the December training camp out in Seville, I um, sat down with the chief coach and he basically said to me, he's like, no, no British junior's ever been quick enough to do the single. I don't believe you will be. Um, I think your best chance is to try and make another double. I just don't think you're going to be good enough. And again, that was the same thing. As soon as he said that, that was the motivation I needed to to go away and make sure, make sure I did it. Bit of a theme developing there with the mental, the mental attitude and strength is kind of coming through, I think. You could say that or uh, you could say it's just, blind stubbornness but <laughs> I'm not really yeah. sure I think they're practically synonyms of each other when it comes to rowers and rowing it seems it seems that you're quite forthright about going you know setting goals and going out to achieve them and quite determined and you became aware quite quickly that this was a sport that that you had a feel for and that that you had the potential to be good at did that kind of upward trajectory when you when you started moving towards the main squad did it just feel like a natural progression, or was it a was there a sudden period of transition? Uh, I think I, I mean for me, in some sense, that kind of a blind attitude of setting setting myself a goal and, and going out and making it happen in some ways in the squad um, was to my detriment when I kind of joined the squad because previous to that I'd kind of set I'd set out these goals I'd had these targets I wanted to achieve and I, I just went out and made sure made them happen uh, in whatever way I needed to. Um, but then once you get in the team, a lot of the control and the ownership gets taken away from you. You can't, you can't just have that kind of, you're set a program, um, you don't get any control over that, you, you, everything is laid out for you and you lo- no longer have any control over your own training and your own destiny in that sense. You almost need to be a little bit more I think at that point I was very individual and I had a very kind of strong idea how how to do things and the best route for me to to kind of achieve those goals. But then once I got into the squad, it it was about being more of a, I don't know, kind of a part of the bigger wheel. And I think in that sense, that's that's why I struggled for quite a while. I think the, the kind of trajectory I was on very quickly halted once I kind of got into the squad because of that different setup. Uh, the different system and the fact that it didn't re- doesn't really allow you to express yourself. It took me a long time to learn that it's it's kind of your you've kind of got a total line and it's not about you as an individual. It's just kind of you've got a yeah you you kind of you're kind of one of many rather than not everything can be about making you go as quick as possible. Alan Campbell uh, recently gave an interview with um, Martin as well, and he talked about working with with his own coach. And, and how important that was for his progression and development as a as a scholar. He he felt that he reached 
the potential that he did and he fulfilled his potential because he, he he worked with his coach. But he also talked about how he felt that sometimes put him on the outside of, of the squad. I'm guessing what you're talking about, Matt, is is having to negotiate a, a, a similar kind of thing where you, you have a very individual take upon how you do things and how you achieve things. And you, you come into a squad where you're almost like a, a cog that fits in a particular place and you have to mesh with other gears. Yeah, I think it is definitely that. And I think, I mean, I think with Alan, and I, I would agree with Alan that I think a lot of it, it, him being able to achieve his success and the, certainly the stuff he did in the single was the fact that he, he was able to bring with him his coach. And the coach he had at the time was very good and very supportive of of kind of ticking the right boxes to to um, to satisfy the the selectors, the coaches in the squad, but yet still maintaining the same kind of individualism to Alan and making sure Alan did the best training and, and got the best and, and Alan was achieving his potential. And I think uh, they did a really good job of that. Uh, I think for me, when I came into the squad, obviously I, I wasn't able to bring my coach with me. Uh, I very much had to move down. I mean, at the time I was 18, I moved down from Northwich to Henley. Um, so I kind of came out alone. I was I came into the squad a lot earlier than Alan. Um, so yeah, I kind of had to find my own way on my own a little bit. And although I tried to maintain a little bit of that kind of individualism about myself, I wasn't able to. It was a, it was a kind of... It's a hard line, to, but it's very much kind of my way of the highway. And um, yeah, unfortunately, it, it did take me a while to, to appreciate that. I think it, I'd obviously been very successful as a junior and I felt I knew what worked for me. And then um, I struggled with the fact that that I was having to tell this line that I didn't really believe in. I didn't believe it was the best route for me to fulfill my potential. Um, and it did take me a long time to, to realise that this was the way I had to do it if I wanted to be successful in this team. I mean, for, for someone who's saying that their trajectory stalled somewhat, you did go on to be a remarkably successful athlete. You know, there's when you look back at all the stuff that you've won, all the medals that are under your name, it's fairly remarkable. I mean, sort of, you went to Athens in the double, raced the double, and then everything else after that, the eight, the the Olympics after that were in the eight. Are, are you one of the very, very few people who've rode at the Olympics in both, or very few men who've rode at the Olympics in both sculling and sweep? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of statisticians better than me. I mean, I, I can think of some of the guys in the squad who would definitely know the answer to that. Um, but yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at all the... I don't know. I was also asked whether I'm kind of one of the few that's won all three colours. Um, but again, I don't know the answer. I don't know kind of, uh, I don't know much enough history of rowing to kind of know. Did it but, seem like a natural transition to come out of the double after Athens and and then to move across to sweep? So I think for me, uh, swap into sweep was the fact that I'd, I think that it, 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 it came down to the fact that for me, that trajectory is just stalled. I think I went into the squad really feeling I had a lot of potential and I wasn't expecting instantly to to obtain success, but I thought maybe I would I I would achieve it quicker. Uh, I mean, I think for me, a lot of it, it's, it's just been maybe frustration that I wasn't fulfilling my potential. I've always feel that if I was kind of achieve like, if I was 
making the bug as fast as I possibly could, then I would have been satisfied. But it was always feeling like I wasn't performing as well as I should have been or or kind of getting, the, uh, which in turn meant I wasn't getting the results I wanted. Um, so obviously the Athens was disappointing. I definitely, and I still feel in different circumstances as that we had and could have done better. Um, the following year I went to, into the quad um, so it was Alan and two other guys. Uh, and again, I really felt that that boat under different circumstances had the potential to do so much better than we did do. And it eventually came to the point where I kind of felt I was getting a little bit stale with the sculling. Uh, I didn't feel there was the support in the sculling side that there was with the rowing side. And it was a case of if you can't beat them, join them. I kind of could see that there was we were very successful on the sweep side. Um, and yeah, I think I, I, for me, I just kind of got f- got fed up of of sitting there watching them collect the medals and me not being part of it. And I eventually felt, well, okay, if, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be successful, I'm gonna be on the podium. I needed to to kind of swap uh, swap over, swap across. Do you think that that progression that you went through and and there's you're obviously talking about you there's a period of negotiation between what you want to do and, and then how you work within a team structure. Um, there's the potential you had as a junior. Do you think that the progression you're talking about is part of the maturation process, the maturing process from being a promising junior into being a, a seasoned international? And, and, and these were, I mean, it obviously paid off because you, you did go on after Athens to have massive success but it's almost a process you had to get through to realise what, what it what it would take for you to win. I think it, yeah, it, it, it was a process. Um, I think it's, it's a difficult one because I still, even having won the gold medal, even coming away being the Olympic champion, there's still something in me that feels a little bit dissatisfied that I wasn't, able to that I had I had to give up a little bit of my dream in order to achieve this other dream um, I mean I said my my dream was always to stand there be on the podium collect a gold medal and be part of the and, and have taken on this challenge and been part of this whole process uh, and I kind of realised in order to win the gold medal I actually had to give up a little bit of that and relinquish that control and just accept that this was my part I had to play to get the gold medal um, and I think yeah that's just I think the system that we're in, I think the, the team is very strong because of the system, but equally it does take out the individualism of the, of, uh, from the athletes. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it was, is, it was kind of much more an acceptance that this was, this was the way it was done. And I think that was maybe from my part, I'd come from, my background was as a single scholar. I'd come from a small club where I was the only athlete and we did everything. It was just me and my coach and everything I did was about me making me go fast and making me achieve what I could achieve in the single. Uh, whereas I guess some of the other guys I was racing with, they'd come from the schoolboy system where straight away they put an eight and they were they were put into a, a one-size-fits-all program and they were used to that. So for them, it was a very easy easy transition. Whereas I think for me, it was a very, it was a completely different transition. I was going from one system to a completely different system. And... I think yeah, it's just in the in a team as big and as strong as the British team, you just have to accept that that is the way it's done, and you can't change it. And I think one, I mean, one of my personal regrets is that I guess maybe I I spent too long in the team trying to swim against the stream, and if I'd accepted that earlier, 
then maybe, yeah, that kind of uh, trajectory I was on could have been smoother and, and quicker. There is a there is a historical precedent for a, a scholar who doesn't want to join the sweep all um, squad then going on to um, significant success. It's a little known figure in British rowing called Steve Redgrave. So it, it's not like you're in bad company there, Matt. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think the difference is Steve. Steve Steve made both sides of it. So uh, yeah, I think. Uh, it, it, the sweep side is established because of Steve and we've all got to give credit to kind of success that, that he's given us. I think, uh, yeah, we're, we are, uh, yeah, I think we're definitely privileged to be passing on. He's passed the book on to us and we'll pass on to the next generation of athletes. And, but yeah, we, we're kind of continuing the success that he definitely started. When, when you were coming towards Rio, did you know that this was your, this was your final shot? Yes. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I mentally, I decided in my head that this was, um, this was my final games. Yeah. I'd, I'd already decided this was going to be my last shot. Um, and I think in some ways that really helped, uh, because actually suddenly all these training camps I've been going on for years and years, I've got really fed up and stale of actually we're kind of, okay, this is the last time we're going to go here. It made me appreciate, I've been in the team by that point for, 16 years and I think it suddenly made me appreciate it so much more because I knew that I was doing everything for the last time. I was, um, yeah, all these kind of, even the miserable Sierra Nevada camps up in the mountains that normally I would dread. Uh, it was like, okay, well, this is the last time I'm ever going to be here. This is the last time I'm ever going to eat this awful food. So I'm actually going <laughs> to enjoy it. And, uh, and it did. It was. It was kind of weird. I, it makes me really wish I'd kind of made that decision earlier, and almost felt like thought every year was going to be my last year because it it made me enjoy it so much more. But yeah, definitely. I think I'd gone into the games. I made that decision, and um, yeah, it's kind of meant now I could do everything and just appreciate it for what it was. I'm getting a sense that it's almost like liberation, or almost like you can see the school holidays opening up in front of you. So you just have to. I'm going to enjoy this because it's the last time I'm doing everything. When we talked to Andy Andy Hodge, he said that when he came to the eight after his, his period of being out with with illness, a lot of it was was about having fun with it and trying just having fun trying to go fast. W was that sense of liberation something across the entire boat, or, or was it just something everyone's on at different stages of their journey? Andy was on his stage of his journey, but he he had a similar sense of liberation and fun about I, I we can just have fun with this and try and make it go go quickly. Yeah, I think uh, I mean I, I wouldn't say it's through the whole box. I think you're right that everyone was on different different journeys, and I mean we had some guys who who were going for their first games. So for them, naturally, it was it was that exciting enthusiasm of going for their first games. Um, but I think it, that is part of the danger sometimes is that you do exactly as Andy said, you forget to have fun. You forget that you're that once you've been doing it for so long and you're so focused and fixated on on the on the end goal and going and achieving and winning that gold medal, you forget to to enjoy what you're doing. And ultimately, I started the sport because I loved it. Um, that's I, when I when I started training and I, I I became good at it because I loved it so much. I, I enjoyed being at the rowing club, which meant that I trained a bit more, which means I got better, which means I enjoyed it more. It was just that's why I did it and. Uh, but along the way, at some point, it becomes so serious and that, that you become so fixated on the result that you do forget that. You forget to enjoy the fact that 
you're training with these great guys, like-minded people. You go into these beautiful lakes in the mountains. You're you're getting to do sport for your job. It's it's, it's kind of this amazing opportunity. Um, and actually, for me, I think a big thing for me was actually after London. Um, we'd uh, we obviously uh, I'd gone into the London year really. Um, I mean, so in, in Beijing, I was obviously disappointed that we that we got silver. We turned up on the day. We we had an amazing build up, amazing preparation, and uh, on the day that the Canadians just raced the boat race. They they led us out from the blocks, and we never able to chase them down. But it very much gave me a lot of what ifs. What ifs we'd race different. So in that four year period for me, it was all all about okay, winning in London. Uh, I'd won the world championship twice. Um, so I definitely went, I was the world champion in 2011. I went into the London year really thinking, okay, this is, this is my year. This is the year I can go on and we can get the gold medal. And uh, we just had a dreadful season right from the off. I mean, when the boat first got put together, it was really quick. But three days before the first World Cup, um, Stan Leloudis, our strongman, got injured. And that was kind of like the catalyst for our whole season that he got injured and then we had to swap the crew around and then we had somebody ill and then he came back and then got injured again. And we just had illness and injury after the whole season. And we definitely turned up in the final London, not the favourites. Um, the Germans had been unbeaten for the whole four years and we kind of knew on paper, if they raced their race, we raced our race, they were going to win it and we would most likely come second. But being London, we thought, okay, it's our one chance, home crowd. We've got to take that risk, go for the gold medal. Pretty simple. We thought, okay, if we get in front of them, we can put them in, under enough pressure. Hopefully the crowd will get across the line. And we, we kind of thought that maybe we could crack them. And you've kind of got to give credit where credit's due, that they held that nerve. And yeah, although it was working for, what, I don't know, 1,700 metres, with 300 metres to go, the wheels fell off and we ran out of steam. But although I was really disappointed about the result, although I'd say, although I was kind of proud about the way we raced, the fact we'd taken that risk on the day, I was bitterly disappointed that I hadn't won and the fact that it was a home games. And it probably took me a good year to kind of get over it. And it was only when I was at the World Championships the following season in 2013, um, I was back in the, I was in the double. I decided to kind of, again, I decided to take a bit of a break from the sweep and the eight. And I'd been given the opportunity to race in the double and I thought it'd be something a bit different. So I'd gone back in the double and we just hadn't had a great world championships. And I, it meant that we weren't in the final. And I was sat in the, on the stands watching the finals come down. Last race of the, eight, uh, last race of the day was the eights. Sure enough, sat there watching the guys come down, British eight, win the gold medal. And uh, although, yeah, okay, I was obviously overjoyed with all the guys. Inside, it was that kind of, oh, God, I want, that's where I want to be. I was watching those guys collect their gold medal, knowing that's where I want to be. I want to be on the centre of the podium. Uh, I want to be out there with them. Um, and that, for me, was like, okay, when I kind of looked at myself and said, okay, if I'm going to go on for another four years, I've got to reevaluate how I do things and and I can't just keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. So I need to, I mean, for me, it's always been about trying to achieve my potential. Um, but one of the big things was I kind of looked at 
my attitude of the way I'd been training. I, I felt that, okay, yeah, I've got room to improve physically. My biggest thing was my approach to training. And the big thing I identified was the fact that I'd stop enjoying it. I'd been so fixated on the gold medal in London that actually, even though I'd kind of won in won the world championships twice and I'd had loads of success in that four years, as far as I was concerned, because we hadn't won, I'd written off that whole four years as a waste. I'd, I'd kind of, in my head, I'd, that whole four years it was a failure. And I think for me, that was kind of the realization that, hold on a minute, that's not the case. Okay. The, the end result wasn't the way I wanted it to be, but I've actually had a great four years. I've, I've achieved so much in this four years. And if I'm going to do another four years, I can't pin it all on that one race. I've got to enjoy the whole four years and enjoy it again. And I think that for me was a, a big thing that I kind of, yeah, identified that I needed to change and I needed to start enjoying it again. And, and from that moment onwards, I, I made much more of a conscious effort to, to enjoy it and kind of enjoy being with the guys, enjoy rowing the boat, enjoy doing the things I, I loved about the sport. Um, so for me, yeah, that started four years earlier, but I think, yeah, by the time I got to Rio, it was just part of the, the bigger picture. My understanding is that the Germans were favorites in Rio. I'm sure it wasn't easy, but it looked easy. It was just like, you know, you, you were out there and then just everyone else went away from you and you were just in the lead. Did, did it just feel like, yeah, we got this? <laughs> and they might have been famous to you, but they definitely weren't to us. Oh. I think, uh, I mean, we, we'd, I mean, not me. I've been in the pair for a couple of years, but the eight, had, we'd won all three world championships. So going into it, we, we were the world champions. We... Uh, there was a lot of guys in the boat who had, who okay, we'd had a really bad season again, a bit similar to London with illness and injuries. But we ultimately knew we had Nate that was capable of winning. By the time we got to Rio, uh, we knew that it was a case of we if we delivered what we we're capable of, then we would win it. And there was kind of no doubt. I mean, I, I could see out with Lee because we'd not had a good season and we'd be beaten by the Germans at the the uh, the last World Cup. I think the Dutch at maybe Lucerne as well. So I, yeah, we can understand outwardly we weren't the favourites, but internally we knew we were we were the best crew as long as we delivered what we were capable of doing. You get a sense of how well the boat's going and we kind of turned up in Rio full of confidence that we could definitely win it. The, the, the story I heard was that they'd, um, that the German Rowing Federation arranged for their president to hand out the medals <laughs> because they were that confident that they were going to win. It's a story Hodge told us that they that they got their their federation president ready to hand out the golds, and he, he thought it was very sweet. Were you aware of that? Yeah, well, and he likes getting a bit more involved in all, all that kind of stuff to the side of it. That yeah, I, I maybe kind of stick a little bit more with just just the race, and I I wasn't aware of that. So I mean, that, that might have been the case. I can't I can't possibly uh, confirm couldn't possibly or deny. comment. Couldn't possibly comment. Yeah. Can I just ask? We 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 just had a, a chat with Eric Murray. And he said that when they got to Rio, he said, forget what you saw on your screen where it looked like a decent course. He said it was on, on the day of their final, it was horrible. And once they got once they got out in front and they knew they had it in the bag, it was like his call was right. Don't stuff this up and we've got it because it, it was very choppy. Did, did you did you get a sense on the course of, of these are these are these are harder than usual conditions or it was it was more difficult or, or once you got out was it was it also a case for you was like right well, at what point did you think we've got this in the bag 
keep it neat, keep it tidy, take it home, don't stuff it up. I think we were so we were a bit more fortunate that we actually I think we raced on better days than the power than than the power race. I mean, yeah, there were some pretty awful days in Rio. Um, whereas I think actually on our days, so on the heats, uh, on our heat, on our final, actually we got relatively good conditions. I mean, obviously being in an eight, you're never going to feel it quite as badly as you would in a pair. But I think, yeah, on our conditions, we on our days, we, we got generally better conditions than, than other boats got. I mean, I remember uh, sat at the hotel watching the women's singles heats go down and even it was... It's just comical. They were just sinking along the way. And I mean, we actually went out one day in training because we'd, um, I don't know if you remember, but early on in the season at the Europeans, the first race of the year, we turned up at the Europeans. We'd been absolutely flying in training. I mean, we were kind of doing world record speeds of fun. The boat was just, yeah, it was on fire. And we turned up at the Europeans full of confidence that we were just going to, first race of the season, straight away, blow everyone away. Um, and then in the, in the, Final, we just got really bad weather and it, it was a real bad crosswind. Really choppy. Uh, we were in lane four and it, I think it was went with lanes. And I mean, we were in lane four just taking on, it was a joke. I mean, we were just taking on so much water. It was like the boat race and we finished. And it, I mean, it's, it kind of was like deadlifting the boat out of the water. It was just, it was just ridiculous. But we went away and obviously we were really disappointed. I think we came away with bronze. and But we kind of said, look, there's a chance we could get the same weather in Rio. So we've got to make sure that if we do, we're capable of still winning because clearly, clearly fees aren't going to make sensible decisions and, and postpone it like they should do. We can't rely on them. So we need to make sure that if it does go ahead, we can, we can still win. And then there was, so we kind of been, we always, we'd had this in our back of our mind the whole season. And like any time it was rough or bad weather, we'd kind of purposely, rather than going indoors like we would have done normally and sat on the ergo, we were like, no, no, we've got to go out because we have to get better in these conditions. And then we turned up one of the days at Rio and uh, nobody was going out. It was, an, it was the North Sea. It was an absolute gale. Uh, but we were like, like, look, guys, this is what we've been training for. We, we've got to go out. We've got to, we've got to try and make sure we use this opportunity. And, and yeah, I remember going along and it must have been like two, three days for the start of the Olympic regatta and pretty much we were sinking and it was just comical. We were like laughing and joking and because you couldn't row. I mean, you could barely go up and down the slide. But in our heads, that was our, our big opportunity that we could get this in the final. We got prepared. But yeah, luckily for us, we, we didn't get those conditions. We uh, It was much better uh, for the day of our final. So um, yeah, we, we kind of got away with it. You won, you won the gold. It was your last medal uh, I believe you did a bit of coaching um, yep. at school but you've also managed to in what I'm sure is quite a short space of time turn yourself into an airline pilot uh, well I wouldn't say airline pilots I'm not currently working but uh, I'm ready to work for the airline so if there's anyone out there who wants to give me a job then uh, I mean, yeah, I'm ready it's, and waiting it's a pretty bloody <laughs> terrible time to sort of become qualified as, a, as an airline pilot but I mean how how did you I mean was that always something you had in the back of your mind that that you knew about the industry or yeah it was so um I kind of made the decision after London that Rio was going to be my last chance. Um, so I knew the build up to Rio that, that I was going to retire. Um, I was going to retire. And, and in that four years I'd started 
looking around. I'd done a little bit of work experience, tried out various things. Um, but ever since I was a kid that I'd always wanted to be a pilot. That was always the thing. I remember even when I was really young and I'd gone to like careers days and they'd said, what do you want to do? I, I wanted to be a pilot. So a little bit like, I guess being a pilot is a bit like rowing. It's still got this very elitist like uh, persona around it and there's a lot of barriers to entry. So for a long time, I dismissed it as something I wasn't going to have the funding to do and have the backing to do. So, um, but then I, I kind of came to uh, coming up to Rio and I just basically came to the conclusion if it was something I really wanted to do, uh, then I should just go for it. And I think the kind of having had like the long career in rowing and the ups and downs, it gave me the confidence that actually, yeah, if it's something I was really passionate about doing and I'll find a way to make it work. So I'd already made that decision before Rio that that's what I wanted to do. Um, it was just a case of working out how was the best way to do it, which is why I took a year to, uh, doing coaching. Uh, so I just wanted to give myself time, but that was always the way I was going to go. It's just a, it was a case of working out the best way to do it. I suppose that brings us to where we are now. And you are now working with one sporting world. Um, and, uh, You've brought along another chap in the call, um, Dave Cotton, and why don't you guys tell us a little bit about what One Sporting World is and what it does? Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for... Hey, David. It's David here, yeah, obviously not Matt. Um, but, yeah, um, basically One Sporting World is uh, kind of following on from the work that we've done with the GB rowers and other Olympic athletes since 2012. Uh, Legacy 300 has raised over half a million pound now for good causes. Um, essentially, Matt and the, the rowers um, have been doing days at Henley, three days a year. Uh, people have paid uh, lots of money to be there through charity auctions. And it's been a very fun experience. We No one's fallen in the water yet. Um, though I think um, Polly, Polly Swan was very close to uh, when she took three novice novices out once but we've we've done really well and um what i wanted to do um i think since last march was to go global but unfortunately i got beaten to it by a pandemic um but matt has been kind enough to put us in touch with rowers in america canada france uh, australia new zealand and we're now in a position to do what we do in this country around the world and it's a great way for rowing the rowing community to to help the athletes um, with this project, precisely, what is what is the thing that you do? What what is the, the what is the what is the punter going to see? What is the charitable work that you're going to do? What is the what is the corporate side going to see? Well, it's it's more about um, meeting the athletes, um, hearing stories such as Matt's, um, being in a small group as well. So I, I think we've always prided ourselves that people go out in a quad uh, for safety reasons. Uh, there's three of them in a quad with one of the GB rowers, and that will be the same in America or, or Canada. And for good causes, um, it's a way of using the athletes to raise money without any risk. For corporates, it's a great way for them to use the money that they're going to give to a charity and see if we can get the Olympians to multiply it through the ways that we've done. And it's, it's, a, it's a method that's worked since 2012. And no matter 
what good cause you're looking to support, the opportunities there to work with rowers and cyclists and all the other athletes to, to see if the supporters of the charity want to go on days with these guys, they usually do, and to see how much money they're prepared to pay. And if it doesn't work, then the corporate's money will still be with the charity. That seems like a pretty effective way of leveraging char- charitable donations and just like pushing it a little bit further. It, it, it's, it's obviously going to find its audience. You know, there are, I think when we've done the days, Matt, and I'm sure you agree, you just get loads of different people turn up. Some are experienced rowers, some are kids, some have never rowed since university or some have never rowed at all. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure the athletes get something out as well, don't they, Matt? Yeah, I think for us it's this kind of, uh, it's, well, it's a lot of fun. It's a, yeah, it's a chance for us to meet very different people. Um, I think definitely as Olympians, Olympic athletes, you, you're so focused on the sport and competing and the performance side of it that you actually forget that, you quite often forget that, yeah, that, that you are inspiring the next generation or, or people to, and like I was. I mean, I got into sport by watching Steve Redgrave and, um, and, and just yeah, to enjoy it. So I think I think for us as athletes, it's a nice chance to be out to 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 kind of meet people who've been sitting there watching us, cheering us on on the TV. And it's not something you often get because you're so fixated on training and making the boat go fast that you sometimes forget that yeah, there's there's a lot of people like helping you get there. True. Um, well, guys, I mean, speaking as a couple of people who have spent quite a lot of vocal calls cheering you on over the past 16 years. Greatly appreciate you coming on the programme um, and greatly appreciate, David, you telling us a little bit more about this opportunity. And one of, I think one of the things I wanted to say was probably it's an opportunity for rowing clubs and rowing schools and, and whoever else is fundraising for themselves in the world of rowing to use the interest in Matt and the team and 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 to, to make some money for themselves. And because people want to go on these days, it's just that we struggle to tell people because we don't get our emails passed on by rowing clubs. So yeah, we're here, we'll do it three times a year. Uh, various people come along um, and, you know, and if you're listening overseas, then get your employers involved. It's easy to get involved with us. So it's, it's a great message to get out to, to, to rowers and people and, other sports who, who want to meet the heroes and, and the heroines. It's great for charities to get involved with and it's great for corporates to get involved with because everybody ends up a winner. Thank you very much for coming on, David and Matt. It's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot. See you later. Bye.